0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios.
1: Brian Lehrer on WNYC, and we'll wrap up today's show with a relevant guest to calls from you if you feel stuck. Listeners, how many of you currently feel stuck in life or have felt stuck in life in the past? 212 433 WNYC. What do I mean by stuck? Why do I ask this now? Well, here we are on January 31st. So you've gotten through dry, dry January. If you've been doing that, what are you going to do tomorrow? Uh, but if that was your only New Year's resolution or your main New Year's resolution, we're not even talking about you. Because often the New Year brings upon everybody a time of reflection and a desire to change really big things in our lives. Maybe for some of you that is alcohol. But how have you been doing on those biggest life-changing New Year's resolutions? Two one two four three three, wnyc What situation or aspect of your life is making you feel stuck? And our guest uh, who will further explain why we're inviting you to call in? And this, in particular, is Adam Alter, professor of marketing at NYU's Stern School of Business, an affiliated professor of psychology as well at NYU, and author of the book Anatomy of a Breakthrough: How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. Uh, professor Alter, welcome to WNYC. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having. Thanks so much for having me, Brian.
1: So, listeners, help me invite the listeners in. What kind of stuckness do you um, do you do you concentrate on in the book and and who would you like to hear from today?
2: Yeah, it's a good question because there are a lot of ways of thinking about what stuckness is. I, I'm really interested in the the kind of stuckness that's protracted. So I'm not talking about momentary or daily frustrations. I'm talking about things that plague us across long stretches of time, sometimes for months, years, or even decades of our lives. And I'm not so much focused on stuckness that is intractable, that we can't fix, but more on the kinds of stuckness that are susceptible to our interventions. So the reason I wrote this book was to try to give a sort of roadmap for getting unstuck in all sorts of different situations. So it really is these cases where you're stuck for a long time, you think you might be able to do something about it, but you're not sure what your steps should be.
1: Tell us a story. Tell us one person's story.
2: Oh there are so many stories I'll give you one example this is uh, an athlete who ended up uh, winning gold for the United States in the 100 meter backstroke event uh, was a tremendous olympic swimmer in the 1988 and 1992 olympic games but was at least physically speaking very different from the other athletes was not a world record breaking athlete by appearance alone in fact when a lot of the coaches saw him they said you were about 6 inches shorter than the average elite swimmer but uh, his stuckness, he was a very good swimmer, but he wasn't quite elite. His stuckness was such that he needed to do something a little bit different. And what he ended up doing was spending his years at Harvard, where he went to school as an undergrad, with a coach who encouraged him to experiment, to try all sorts of new techniques and approaches. And this this kind of flavor of experimentalism, where you treat your life as a long extended experiment of trying different techniques, turned out to be very helpful for the swimmer. Uh, his name is Dave Berkhoff. He pioneered a completely new technique for swimming the backstroke. He broke multiple world records and won multiple Olympic gold medals. And and that's although that's, that's an Olympic athlete, the same basic technique a- applies to many of us in our everyday, much more ma- mundane aspects of our lives as well.
1: And by the way, the reason, listeners, that this got on our radar, I should have said this at the very beginning, is a New York Times piece from just the other day, the 25th, that... Um, maybe you saw called Feeling Stuck, here are five ways to jumpstart your life. And it very prominently uh, quotes my guest Adam Alter and tells a little bit of his story. So why don't you tell yours a little bit. Um, this, the, the article by Christina Caron says at 28, he had earned a doctorate in psychology from Princeton and soon afterward landed a job as a tenure-track professor at NYU, but he felt stuck.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think I, I think it's a very good question. You know, the important point about being stuck is that it's it's a subjective experience. I spoke to someone who told me that his father was a mathematician who worked on the same problem for thirty years and didn't make much meaningful progress, but loved every minute of it and never felt stuck. I was in the situation of of being, you know, blessed with an incredible, incredible period of my life of of great uh, objective success. Things were going exactly as I wanted, but I, I wasn't sure that I was on the right career track. I really missed my family. My family was in Australia. They were a long way from where I was living and I just wasn't sure if I was moving in the right direction and I felt mired and stuck in a way that was kind of puzzling from the outside. And so I needed to figure out what was the best way to move forward to make sure that I had sort of made peace with the direction my life was taking. So I think stuckness can often be puzzling to people from the outside, but from the inside if you're experiencing it, uh, that that's really what matters. How do you feel in the moment and do you feel like you can move forward or do you feel a little bit uh, burdened by friction or uncertainty.
1: Let's take a phone call. Josh in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC. Hi, Josh.
3: I think that's me. Am I on?
1: That is you. You are on.
3: Hi, Brian. Um, yeah, I, I called before, actually, uh, your segment was uh, about uh, spouses that had separated, but might still be uh, staying together. And so that's uh, one way that I'm stuck. But I'm actually calling to talk about something that's probably fairly general is, you know, I, I have a job, it, it, it's okay, but I, I feel stuck. It's not satisfying. In particular, the money is okay. And in the past, uh, you know, I'm older now. But in, in the past, what I've done is, um uh, Uh, either there have been layoffs or I I just resign and then I sort of get organized around a job search and find something that's more satisfying and interesting. And I'm a little bit anxious about doing that now. And and I guess uh, the question for your guest would be, you know, for people that feel like they could get organized around making a substantive change in in any area, really, but feel like, you know, with uh, the responsibilities of daily life, uh, how do you take a step back and kind of clear your desk and and make like psychic space and time in order to make a big change like, what kind of commitment is required do I, you know, just need to just muster up the courage to quit and find something better and take that risk or uh you know how would you speak uh briefly about how to approach something like that where yeah. you know some important things are are, uh, are at stake
1: professor alter got anything for josh
2: yeah, absolutely. This this is probably the most common kind of stuckness that I hear about. I've interviewed thousands of people all over the world, and this kind of general stuckness where where life is okay, but you think there might be better options out there, whether it's professionally or otherwise. It's a very common kind of stuckness. The first thing I think that's really important is to to treat your life in some sense like a kind of science experiment where there have to be different options, different conditions. in In order to know what the options are before you can decide to make a change, you need to know what am i leaving on the table if i continue on with the current path what are the other options that i'm leaving behind so in in the career context what i advise a lot of people to do is to to know what the options are so before you actually make any substantive changes one thing to do is to assemble a sort of choice set know that your your marketability is such that there are six or seven other possible jobs out there for you and start to explore them figure out whether they might be appealing figure out what the salary might be, what what the job conditions are, do they let you work from home, do you have to be in the office and so on. And when you have a choice set, you're in a much better position to decide whether to actually make that leap. The other thing about assembling a choice set is it does what I think is a very important first step in getting unstuck, which is you do something, you make some sort of change, some sort of movement. And uh, overcoming inertia is is a really big part of, of getting unstuck. And so I think figuring out what that first step is, is very important. And in this context, I think it is really assembling a viable choice set of alternatives so you can then go through the pros and cons and weigh them up and decide whether to move forward.
1: Josh, I hope that's helpful. The first step in the New York Times article that quoted you um, had you saying, do a friction audit. I thought that might be interesting as a term for you to define for our listeners, a friction audit.
2: Yeah, a friction audit, it's this really interesting idea that I I think really begins in uh, tech companies when they create products for us. One of the questions they have is, how do we get people to use these products for hours and hours on end? And the thing that stops you from using a product is usually a sort of sense of friction, like time is passing and I need to do something else. So one thing they've done over time is they've made their products as friction-free or frictionless as possible by finding the areas where if you look at millions of users, they seem to run into a little roadblock, and then that pushes them off the product. Now, the same approach is true in our everyday lives, that when you look at your life, there are certain areas of life that feel either overwhelming, uh, maybe they scare you a little bit, maybe they're just uncomfortable. There are areas where there's natural friction where when you have to do that thing, it always feels like it's the hardest part of the day or it's the the most daunting part of the day or the most unappealing. Those are friction points. And I think to live a good, uh, fulfilling life, one of the best things you can do, one of the easiest and first things you can do is to say, where is the friction? Is there a way for me to either sand it down or to eradicate that aspect of my life altogether? Try to sort of take it out like a weed from the roots And remove that from your life. Because when you take these friction points away or sand them down, what's left is a life that's generally a a lot more fluid that allows you the time and space to breathe and to consider questions like, is there a better job out there for me? So I think a friction order is a very helpful first step.
1: Michael in Jersey in Chester, you're on WNYC. Hi, Michael.
0: Hi, thanks for taking my call, Brian. Uh, Yeah, so what I was telling your screener is that I'm the father of two young children. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a six-month-old infant, and I have a very demanding job that's uh, fortunately remote. But what it leaves is very little time for myself. Um, so to kind of paraphrase the Michael Keaton movie, Multiplicity, for me, my family comes first, my job comes second, and I am a very distant third. Mm. And so I'm always trying to look for more ways to invest in my own personal growth outside of my identities as a father and as an employee. And it's just incredibly difficult for me to find the time to invest and do that without sacrificing sleep. I think that's the easiest way to be able to do those things, but I cannot function without getting sleep. So I find myself stuck between a choice of taking care of all these personal obligations and finding the time to become a better me or a different me.
1: Professor Alter, do you get this one much? Do you have anything for Michael?
0: Yeah,
2: I, I have to say, when you have a two-year-old and a six-month-old, this is a borderline universal experience. I'm a couple of years removed from that myself, and I I had a very similar experience of that period of my life. I I think uh, one really useful thing to do there is to basically sketch out what tw- the average 24 hours looks like in your day, and fill in that 24-hour block with the things that are essential, and then if you think of it like almost a financial budget, what's discretionary, like what's left over at the end? And so in terms of time, you might say eight hours of sleep is non-negotiable, and then I have work, and maybe that's seven or eight or nine or 10 hours of the day, whatever it might be, maybe including a commute on the days when you aren't working from home, if that's the case. Uh, Taking care of the kids, maybe it's non-negotiable that you spend dinner time with them and so on. What you'll end up having is an unfortunately fairly thin sliver of time that's left over, that is discretionary. And then the question is, what do you do with that time? Now, what most of us do when we're exhausted is we turn to our phones and we scroll for those few hours and leave very little else left. It's not very enriching. And at the end of the day, you have the sort of response that we just heard, which is that I don't have much time for myself. I think to purposefully and mindfully sort of carve out out of that what discretionary time is left, things that are really important and meaningful to you, whether it's a phone call with someone you love and makes you feel good or time spent with friends having a drink or not even a drink, a coffee, whatever it might be, uh, whether it's a particular hobby or pursuit, whether it's moving your body, fitness, whatever really matters to you, mm-hmm. everyone has a different Carve answer. Carve out
1: some time. And, yeah. and, and maybe if you haven't already done this, if you're parenting with a partner, um, you know, make a deal where maybe each of you has <clears throat> certain times of the week that really are off time or time for you in the way you you define it. Also, Michael, if it helps, in a few years, given the age of your kids right now, it is going to get easier. It is. Uh, let me get one more in here that's really different. Bob in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC, and Bob, I apologize. We've got about thirty seconds for you.
3: Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I'm a retired teacher. Uh, At age 30, I realized I wasn't cut out to be a musician, freelance, and I kept on playing. I kept on recording. I kept on writing, and here I am, ready to go out there and play again, and I am friction. The friction part really rang with me. Thank you.
1: You mean you can't get back into playing your instrument? I'm
3: playing. I'm still playing. I'm still playing a lot. I just can't get myself to record or perform. I just... Uh You know doing something with
1: it interesting, so we have about a minute left professor alter and i and I will note though um, you know I think your your article and our first few callers have been in relatively younger stages of life the 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 guy with two young kids, the other one wanting to make a career change a, a number of the people calling in are older they're retirees um And most of the major life decisions have been made, but they still feel stuck because there's still friction as pertains to the future. Give us the 30 seconds for Bob and for them.
2: Yeah, the 30 seconds, it's not that different from something I've said earlier, which is that you need to make the first step. So if it's about overcoming the emotional friction of playing in front of other people, think about what the most atomic tiny step might be, whether it's playing in front of one person or playing in front of yourself and imagining being in front of other people or... Calling a particular bar down the road and saying, "Is there an opening here?" Whatever Mm. that first step might be, Mm. uh, make it as small as possible and take that step, and that'll that'll go a long way to getting you getting the ball rolling and getting you to move. Yeah,
1: has to be the last step for today. Adam Alter, author of Anatomy of a Breakthrough: How to Get Unstuck. He teaches at NYU and was profiled in the New York Times. The other day. Thank you. This was really wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. And that's the Brian Lair Show for today. Stay tuned for Allison.